Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. We all know that iconic scene from the 1951 adaptation of A Streetcar Named Desire. Stanley Kowalski, played with dopey brutishness by a young Marlon Brando, stands at the foot of a curved iron staircase, eyes upturned, and belts, Stella, with what Tennessee Williams describes in his stage directions as heaven-splitting violence. We all know it, whether we've seen it or not. It's one of those moments that unmoors from its original context and floats off into our culture at large, showing up in parodies on Saturday Night Live or as good-spirited fun in the annual Tennessee Williams Stella shout-out competition. It's what Elena Passarello calls in her new collection of essays a screaming meme, a unit of vocal culture built to replicate and to travel. In Let Me Clear My Throat... Passarello doesn't merely investigate Brando's Stella. She lives it. In 2002, she became the first woman to win the shout-out. The volume of Passarello's Stella is a good measure of her curiosity. Her book takes up sound-centered topics from the rebel yell to the high sea, from Judy Garland's legendary 1961 comeback performance at Carnegie Hall to the chatter of crows. Along the way, we learn about the psychology, sociology, history, physicality, and humor of the human voice, whether it's coming from Frank Sinatra, Howard Dean, or a ventriloquist dummy. And it all amounts to a celebration of the sounds we create. As Passarello writes of Brandon, Stella proves that you might have wounded someone you love, you might have woken the neighbors, you might have pushed your voice until it sounds cartoonish and alien, but this scream of yours, if it comes from deep enough inside you, it is your best bet. Elena Passarello, welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, it's great to be here. We're so happy to have you on the show. This book that you have, Let Me Clear My Throat, um, out from Cerebam Press, is just wonderful. Well, thank you so much. And I definitely want to get into the book. It's, it's fascinating, the kinds of twists and turns. Um, it's like a montane for the voice or something like that. But before we get to it, I was wondering if you could just introduce yourself to the listeners a little bit, give us a sense of maybe how you got to this project and, and where your interests as a literary artist fall. Sure. Well, um, this project... I sort of uh, stumbled into it. I, I, I worked as an actor for about 10 years before I went to grad school to get an MFA in writing. And when I went to MFA school, I was interested in writing nonfiction essays about lots of different things, profiles. I wanted to write about truckers' wives for a while. And I, I sort of was excited to leave the performance world and write about the rest of the world. And uh, halfway through graduate school, I realized that the entrance point for nearly every piece I attempted was the voice of the person. Even if I was talking about an animal, I would want to talk about the vocal mechanism of that animal. Or if I was doing a profile, I would introduce the person by the way that they sounded. And I, I guess I realized that that was the filter through which I saw the world. And so I sought out to come up with as many essays as I could that sort of worked that angle. 
Well, and it's a fascinating approach because there's a whole genre out there of, of essays and, and literary or, well, I guess cultural criticism that, that deals with listening, whether it's, you know, uh, criticism about rock and roll or the opera. And you go instead from the, the reception of sound to the production of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm really fascinated about the way that our voices work because uh, for many reasons, um, some of them are personal. Um, I, I, I have a pretty low voice for a lady, and uh, I grew up with a, a thick southern accent that I somehow abandoned at some time between college and Pennsylvania and now. And so the the idea of the voice as a, a defining characteristic that can be lost is always sort of juiced my writer brain. But in a large or less personal sense, you know, the human voice is something that we kind of don't know as much about as we think. That actual production that you were talking about, Eric, we have some basic ideas of the components that come together to make sound. But there are all these wonderful mysteries um, that even the most well-versed vocal performers still subscribe to. We're still kind of, all singers and actors kind of admit to a a vocal voodoo that they fall prey to no matter how trained they are. And and I'm very fascinated by that too. Well, you mentioned at one point that the voice itself is kind of an evolutionary trick. We lucked out. We aren't, we don't really have the capacity to do it. And yet somehow through human evolution, we end up having one. Yeah, totally. We hit the jackpot. We, uh, Lucy, the hominid uh, that was found as uh, one of our earliest linked uh, hominid human beings, she wouldn't have been able to make vocal sounds the way that we do because her hyoid bone in her throat wasn't tipped back far enough for her to have the vocal diversification needed. Um, so it's, it's a new adaptation, and adaptation is really the right word because there is no such thing really as a vocal body part. We stole our the ability to make sounds from our lungs, which obviously help us breathe, and, and from our epiglottis, which is, helps us eat and swallow and digest food, and from our spine, which keeps our heavy brains up in the air. Uh, there is no system immediately devoted to the human voice aside from those two little vocal cords that are barely significant in a way. And what you're saying makes me want to jump into about four different essays that you've written. But I feel as though we, we need to give people some sense of, of what the book is. And it's not one that falls into a, an easy category. I think it's, it's as much its own unique work of art um, as it is a kind of set of familiar essays that you can just uh, slide into. And uh, so normally I would like to give a little summary like, well, this book is about X, but I'd really love to hear you describe it. Well, it's funny to because we start talking about all this science and all of this sort of metaphysical stuff that how we started our conversation. But the book is not like that at all. It, it doesn't come from a place of expertise in terms of science or biology or even performance theory. It's much more, uh, I hope, uh, colloquial than that. It, it's a I would call it fifteen essays on moments in human history in which the voice has done something interesting. So it goes from the Castrati in the 18th century to Howard Dean in uh, 2004, making that crazy yell in the uh, 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 Iowa caucuses in 2004 to uh, my own work as an actor dealing with stage fright or um, performance to the Stella scream. So it's just, I just kind of wanted to come from a place of fascination and spend 
20 pages or so exploring a, a dozen plus vocal moments, moments of vocal pop culture, I guess. It's a super friendly book. And so no, indeed, no dry scientific writing. Although it seems as though you've amassed all of that research and putting it together. Uh, it's friendly. It's funny. You've got a wicked sense of humor at certain points. And uh, I think there's also a certain kind of, well, you show up in it, as does your mom. So there's a little bit of personal history that comes into it as well. Yeah, I was I was a little reluctant to do that at first. I, I felt that it would be more interesting if my own personal investment in the voice were something that fueled the inquiry, but didn't really show up on the page. But Sarah Band got behind this book long before it was finished. And Sarah Gorham, my Svengali, <laughs> she uh, really encouraged me to lace a personal theme throughout the book. So it's not in every essay, but every three essays or so, I do sort of check in with myself and with why I would be fascinated by this. And I think it helps the book. I'm not sure, but I think so. Well, I think at moments, I what I get as a reader is a, a sense of identification and personal investment. But I also get through, through your own narrative, um, here's what it would like here's what it would be like to be an actor. Here's what it would be like to do the, uh, you know, what is it? The 2011 Stella scream off. Um, <laughs> and so you, you take me into it in a way that I think just the, the critical voice, however friendly, um, might give me a little bit of distance. Uh, but there's just so much smart stuff and, and maybe Stella's a place we could start because you do approach it from two different angles in two different essays. Right. For me, that is the pinnacle vocal moment of American culture. Marlon Brando, 1951, letting it rip in whatever Warner Brothers sound studio or whatever. I just think it's, it's beautiful. It's passionate. It's goofy. It's strange. It's short. And uh, for me, it's a real, a real hot point moment. Uh, So I began just sort of exploring what I liked about the Stella scream in, in the first, this first little essay. And in doing the research, I learned about this contest that they have every year on Tennessee around Tennessee Williams birthday, where they have a whole bunch of people uh, stand in Jackson square and scream. Uh, I told Sarah Gorham um, before I had written the essay that I was going to go down there and enter the contest and I was going to win. And because I had verbalized that, I had to go down. But I really had intended on going down to this screaming contest and doing sort of like a George Plimpton guinea pig, I'm going to lose sort of thing. But I got a little competitive and well, the rest is history. And I ended up being the first um, female winner of the Stella shouting contest. And we are going to make sure that the video is on the website for people to see it. Um, there's not only three screams of Stella that end up taking you to your knees, but suddenly there's a complete recovery and a chorus line kick. <laughs> yeah. Well, you got to end with a bang. If there's anything theater teaches you is, you know, always have a good finale. So. <laughs> Did a high kick. <laughs> so, so this is a great claim that, that somehow if you were looking at the epicenter of vocal production in, in America, uh, we would we would be led to Marlon Brando and to Stella. Can you tell us a little bit more about why that would be the case? Well, it's a horrible postulate uh, if you're coming from any kind of a professional perspective because it, it's his vocal placement is not great. Uh, it's, not, it's certainly not a place that he could go to day after day after day. He would really hurt himself. Uh, he's closed his throat. I mean, we know the way that Brando talks and then he's got that Stella that he does where he just flattens the back of his mouth. So in that respect, I'm sure people would cringe 
if they heard that I thought that this was this pinnacle moment. But for me, it just feels so American. Uh, it's 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 not necessarily raw, but it's it's open hearted, and it's uh, very culpable from the the context of the scene, you know, he's just kind of manhandled his pregnant wife and then he yells at the bottom of this balcony and he gets it to work. So it's got this rawness and this open heartedness, but it's also kind of strange. It sounds weird. I always tell the story that uh, I had a, my nephew who at the time was four was crying crocodile tears at the dinner table one day. And my partner and I both were like, Oh, Stella, you poor baby, Stella, to make fun of the fact that he was crying. And he immediately started screaming Stella because he thought it was so funny. He just started going, Stella, Stella, Stella. And he didn't know Marlon Brando. He'd never seen Streetcar. I don't think he'd seen Streetcar at four. So the third thing that it is is, is replicable. It's pop. So I think those, those three things all smushed together are what make it such a, a starter moment for me. Well, one of the things you're interested in in the book is is what you're calling vocal memes or sound memes where things reproduce. Uh, but before we leave Stella behind and before we leave your performance behind, uh, this might be a great place to, to test whether Sarah Gorham was correct. Did you discover anything in embodying Brando's scream that you wouldn't have got if you'd only looked at it from the outside? I, I think so. I th- well, I think it, it, it helped me figure out another gear for the book, uh, uh, and which is writing about making sound myself, writing from the inside of the body. Before that, I, when I was writing these vocal essays, I was thinking about how to do it medically, to talk about what's happening on the inside of the body. Like in my Judy Garland essay, I talk a lot about how the sound produced inside a pregnant woman's body affects the baby inside of her. But I had never really talked about myself, almost like almost like a biological memoir. And it was so fun to think really hard and watch that YouTube clip again and again and try to sort of, it's like inner space, you know, (laughs) just try to like to write nonfiction about the self, what it felt like to make that sound. So it was, I mean, she's, she knew what she was doing. She was right. I I really should have done it. (laughs) She'll like that. I hope. I hope so too. I can't say enough great things about her. I, I, I've never really, this is my first book and um, it was such a, as a writer, so wonderful to, I didn't know that when you put a book together that there were teams of people that would help you figure things out. And I don't know if it's the same with other writers, but it was, it was so cool to ask questions and have people help you work through the questions of your project. It was really something. Well, Saraband is an unfailingly wonderful press, and uh, if if your book leads people to more books by them, that will be a great thing. Um, I can't, however, you know, I'm just imagining a list- listener who says, wait, there's an essay about Judy Garland in which you're talking about how the vocal production of the mother affects a child in the womb. How how does that essay come together? How do those, those two things belong in the same essay? Well, one of the pitfalls, I think, of writing a collection of essays that are all about the same thing is that you sort of you, you run the same melody through each piece. And I really did run into this as a challenge as I was putting the book together. I, I found myself the starting place was always, isn't this cool? Isn't this singer cool? Isn't this vocal sound cool? Isn't this YouTube clip cool? Uh, so I was I always were look, was looking for different ways to sort of open the window into that vocal moment that I was talking about. And I really wanted to write about Judy Garland, who I, I, I never really was one of those Judy Garland heads. Uh, I knew her from uh, 
of Wizard of Oz, and I knew her from this Saturday Night Live parody that Mike Myers used to do of her toward the end of her life, kind of fidgety and smoking and singing Come On, Get Happy with no pants on and like a tux, top, top tail coat and a pair of hot pants. But I didn't really know the middle. And when I discovered the middle, I, I just I fell in love with her. So I was trying to figure out a way to write an essay about Judy Garland where I didn't just write, isn't Judy amazing? And there were lots of false starts until um, I started talking about the Carnegie Hall concert that she made in 1961, which was the second of three major comebacks in her life. And people, people called it the variety, called it the greatest moment in the history of show business. There wasn't a household in, in America that didn't have that album. It's a little hyperbolic, but you know, and uh, so, and I just, and one of the things that I think fascinated me about it was the way that her voice hit the people that were in Carnegie Hall. I started researching, again, as this other entrance point, the architecture of Carnegie Hall and why it's this Stradivarius of American architecture. And the more and more I researched it, the more and more I realized that it sounded a lot like the conversations that people have about what vocal, what the mother's voice sounds like in the womb, the Carnegie Hall of the womb. I couldn't believe how similar the way people talk about how we sit in a music hall and the way that sound hits us resembles uh, in, uh, in utero sound experience. And Judy Garland's mother uh, was a piano hall, a, a player in a dance hall in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And because it was during the, uh, the depression, she had to play every night until like her third trimester. So I thought about Judy in this hall, wowing all these people at age 37. But when she was age, you know, negative, negative six weeks or whatever, she was in her own little Carnegie Hall that had a keyboard on top of it that was playing Toot Toot Tootsie and Tamale, I'm Hot for You and all the hits of 1920 whatever. And so I just, I saw such a lovely connection between the two and, and it really fueled the essay for me to try to bring those two quote unquote halls, those two music rooms together. Well, and it seems to me that this is a, a great instance to talk about your method, um, which is in an age of specialization where, you know, you have academic subfields and sub subfields and sub sub subfields, uh, there seems no fact or no branch that you're not willing just to, to just charge down. And uh, part of the experience of the book is come over here and take a look at biology. No, 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 wait, come over here and take a look at cultural history. No, 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 wait, let's go over here and talk about, you know, when I was uh, an actress doing the sound, ew, come on, no, 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 let's go over here and let's look at the birds singing. Um, so, so tell me a little bit about, about that sort of process. Um, it might not be one that everybody's familiar with. Yeah, I don't. I think that it's allowed more now, probably than it ever has been before, because we look at the nonfiction umbrella as a much more welcoming and diverse place. A person can write a collection between the two covers. They can try out lots of different types of nonfiction, so they can do instead of just becoming an expert on one thing, like a condiment, or becoming a memoirist that is just an expert on themselves or a biographer who's just an expert on one person or a lyric essayist who's exploring form all over everything else. There's space in a contemporary nonfiction collection to be a little more spazzy and to go to lots of different places. So I, I think the, the stuff that I was reading uh, as a student made me feel like I had permission to, uh, you know, uh, sort of, uh, 
stick my toe in a lot of different ponds. <laughs> I, th- I think the result is refreshingly eclectic. I nerded out all over this book. You know, I, I would stop and I would tell people strange facts as though I, I had known them or something like that. But it's just so much fun. Um, <laughs> the form itself kind of mirrors what we might do as more casual readers today anyway. You know, you log on to the internet and spend a little bit of time on this website and a little bit of time on this website. Somebody has aggregated a whole bunch of facts about X and you take a look at that. And I I don't necessarily think it should replace any other kind of writing, but I I do think that, um, that it's fun. It's a fun, it's fun. It's fun for me too. I think it requires though, that you have to kind of put yourself into the book as as a non-expert, as just as a person who's just as curious curious as the reader, but has no interest in necessarily pushing a kind of expertise out into the world, right? I think that's true. I think that one way to describe it would be something like, this This is curiosity modeled or exemplified or galvanized. Uh, but, I, but I will even one-up it more and I'll say something like, but it's not just as the experience of surfing from one thing to the next, because you really do move towards these synthetic conclusions um, about what it means to, say, voice disgust or, or what it means at the end, um, how it is that, that Brando does finally affect us. And so it does seem to me that there's a lot of synthesis and a lot of careful thought that's gone behind where these, we, where these essays lead. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, I think I don't, I, I, I never told myself with, well, each essay took extended amounts of time, like a season of, of, of living in whatever world I was living in 18th century opera the 2004 elections. I really lived in that world and, and for every page that's represented in the book and every place that I go to for research, there's 17 more places that didn't make it in. Um, but I, I never told myself when I was putting together an essay, asking myself why, for example, the Brando scream was something that my nephew would, would glom onto as much as Saturday Night Live would glom onto it as much as I would or the, I never told myself that I had to come up with an answer. I just had to get somewhere where I felt some kind of synthesis or resolve. But I I, I never told myself that I had to answer any of the questions. So essay is journey. Yeah. And I I just, I, I think I feel like I'm pushing everything out and I wouldn't, I, I feel like the, almost like the, it's a, a conversation. Like I, I feel like I'm pushing it out at the reader, but I wouldn't be surprised if they came back at me. I mean, I know they can't because we don't. It's not an interactive book, but I, I imagine them coming back at me with their own three pronged answer, or not answer, but sort of resolve that they come up with. I just feel like it's one one thing that I'm pushing out that I would welcome a response back. Uh, you could almost liken it to, say, a spaceship filled with representative artifacts from Earth and shot out into outer space with perhaps on the side of it something like a record made of gold with all these recordings, and you don't know what's going to come back as a result of it. Well done, sir. Well done. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about that essay, because you're not only writing about the history of the human voice, but you're speculating about its future reception. Yeah, I, I think that the the golden record, which is what you were just talking about, Eric, is this the, this record filled with the quote unquote sounds of Earth, 
that was shot into space, affixed to the side of the Voyager space probes in 1977. Uh, I think it's a really good metaphor for the kind of essaying that I and other writers are doing right now, because obviously we put this, it's it's a great story that Carl Sagan and Alan, uh, Harry Smith and this big team of people trying to curate what they think the sounds of Earth are, trying to make this kind of argument about what we might be, and then putting it onto the spaceship whose probability of being received by some kind of faraway being in 10,000 years is pretty much zero. But the gesture of doing that and tricking their human brains into thinking that it would be possible, that performance, I think, is exactly what the most exciting contemporary essays are trying to do right now. We know that the aliens are not going to answer us back, but there's something about performing that for ourselves that has a really resonant joy. When I found out about this golden record though, it just, it just restored my faith in humanity that we would engage in such a somewhat futile opportunity. It's just poetry. It's, It's perfect to me. And it, it, it reads as though it also energized your appreciation of Chuck Berry. Yeah, yeah. Well, well. unfortunately, the only song that's in English is uh, that the, the they put out there is the Chuck Berry song. There are other songs rep- represented by uh, American musicians. There's a Native American night chant, which is in uh, Navajo language. There's a Louis Armstrong recording, which has no vocals. And then there's a blues song called Dark Was the Moon, but it's just kind of moaning. So if I wanted to to talk about a human voice moving through lyrics, Chuck Berry was all I had. So I really had to sort of get into Chuck Berry. Uh, I think he probably is on the record because of the guitar, the Chuck Berry guitar. But um, the more I listened to Chuck Berry's voice, the more excited I got about it. It's it's, It's so bright and friendly and and pompous, but at the same time, so not interested in vocal pyrotechnics. It's pretty, pretty rad. But the thing that was great about uh, trying to put together an essay about the golden record were the surprises. When I listened to the whole record, I figured I was just going to write about Chuck Berry because everybody knows Chuck Berry. And I was going to write about the Mozart aria from the queen of the night. uh, This, this one of the most famous little runs in the history of opera. Uh, and uh, yeah, so the, the sort of the two most famous vocal moments. But as I was scrolling through the NASA uh, MP3 playlist of the Golden Record songs, this sound just came out of my computer. My partner was in the room with me, and he stood up and was just like, "What is that?" And it's this acapella. It sounds like a microphone right up under this young female voice's chin. I had no idea what language it was in, and it was this flirty strange, coy, uh, I mean, just goose pimple, good, simple song. And it was almost like, I had no idea what she was singing about, but it was almost like the entire picture of what she was singing about popped into my mind. And uh, I felt like an alien. Uh, I felt like an alien who, had, who who was receiving a song from a faraway planet, and it was making these kind of caverns into my mind, and and just just seducing me and making me imagine things. And so it was so fun to report that in the essay. I was it was a real gift that I got to be surprised by this. What turned out to be a Kecha Inca sixteen year old girl singing a song about being tricked into her own wedding night. <laughs> it's so sweet. <laughs> And uh, I I think one of the things that the book does capture is 
is this deep appreciation for the the beauty of certain sorts of sounds. And it's also one of those that you end up putting down and going to the internet and looking up the sound, whether it's the Wilhelm scream or Howard Dean's via thing, um, <laughs> just so you can hear it. And then you go back to the essay and you get to read how how intelligently you engage with that material. Um, but it seems to be in addition to the idea of the beautiful, you're also interested in the cracked and sometimes even murderous qualities of the voice, whether it's, it's what happens to the human body when you produce the high C um, or the, the aggressiveness of the, the mythic rebel yell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love, I love the idea that the voice is something that is uh, not able to be sustained throughout an entire life. Uh, our voice changes and um, becomes more limited. It, it's a muscle, so it, uh, or the parts of it are muscular, so it ossifies and dries out. So this thing that we so deeply associate with ourselves is not able to be sustained at its most mighty. Like, uh, and then the other thing that I'm really fascinated with is how, like all, all major forms of human culture, we then prize people who take their bodies to places of pain. You can't, I mean, I watched the, the football game, uh, the Seattle Seahawks, uh, Washington Redskins football game the Sunday when RG three blew his knee out. And, and he, it's because he was, he's like many athletes taking his body to these superhuman places and they, it just can't be sustained. And there's so many vocalists that do that. Obviously, the the most famous example is the castrati, who literally altered their physical selves so they could make these noises that rattled church walls long before electric amplification. But there are other examples, too. Robert Plant is never going to be able to make the sounds that he did. His voice is covered with nodes, and he has to sing two octaves down because for 10 years of his life, he gave us, you know, these superhuman, balletic football linebacker quality sounds. It's just so gorgeous to me that, that that's a part of our culture. So when, and one of the, the nice points you make out is that Howard Dean and Robert Plant hit the same pitch. Is, <laughs> am I remembering that right? That's right. I, I couldn't figure out how to write an essay about that Howard Dean yell until I figured out, and this was months into my broad research of the Dean scream I figured out that Dean was born the same year as Steven Tyler from Aerosmith, Alice Cooper, Ozzy Osbourne, and uh, Robert Plant, who I think is the greatest rock singer of all time. It's a pretty uh, easy value to hold. I don't think too many people would disagree with me. And then uh, when I I started listening to all these Robert Plant songs, and I realized that at the end of Communication Breakdown, when Robert Plant goes, it's the same high D, I think, that... That's the top of that bia that uh, uh, Howard Dean uh, yelled at the caucus. So Plant goes, and Dean goes, (laughs) (laughs) and when I figured that out, I was like, yay, I can start writing the essay now. My mind exploded because, you know, like rock, uh, the Iowa caucuses and all these political rallies now are just filled with rock and roll filled with it. They try to treat it like a, like a, like a sporting event. There are all these jock jams and it's so funny that Dean's was so vilified for making this sound. The you know the the networks had some of them issued formal apologies for the amount of times that they played that scream again and again and again in the week period following the 2004 Iowa caucus. But so he gets vilified for making this noise. 
But all around him are the screams of people who are the exact same age as he, making almost the exact same sounds as he. And, you know, Plant just got a Kennedy Center honor like (laughs) two weeks ago. That fascinates me. I think that's a a great way to to give yet another description of this unique book in the sense that you take this little burst of sound and you do a cultural back history of the the generation that made it and how it signifies now that they're they've grown up um and how in one instance it can be the high point of rock and roll and in the other instance it can be the downfall of a presidential candidate it's really kind of wonderful the way it spins outward um let's go back even farther so what's going on in the fields of manassas oh wow well this is i really the the rebel yell is um was just I was you know I made a list of things that I knew were vocal sounds that I was curious about and the uh, right when I was thinking about writing a book like this and the rebel yell was immediately up at the top because I had heard this myth that Stonewall Jackson and his men had made this sound that had terrified uh, the Union troops at the Battle of Bull Run or First Manassas to the point where they couldn't fire their guns and that's how the first major Confederate victory happened. Of course, after research, that's not really what happened at all. There were many, just like with the Dean campaign, there were many other factors. But the thing that I did discover was that this sound, this rebel yell, uh, fascinated people from the very first moment. And still, to this day, nobody can correctly appropriate what it sounded like. Even with recorded technology, I would argue that the recordings that we have of people trying to reenact the rebel yell, the 60, 70 year old soldiers in the early part of the 20th century, they still can't tell us um, what that yell sounded like. One of the reasons that I think this is because when people spell out the rebel yell in things like Gone with the Wind or articles in the Saturday Evening Post or lots of British journalism from the 19th century, the, the words that they use, the gibberish words that they put together to make the yell are so wildly different. They just, there's no way they could be the same sound. And for you, that's not only a, a source of disparity, but it's also something that you continually analyze. In fact, you even scan as a small poem the phrase rebel yell and you know, speculate that one of the reasons that it's stuck is because when you put those two words together, it sounds really great. <laughs> That's the, yeah, that's the only thing I could come up with as a, as a, again, as a point of kind of resolution. If, if I, if I'm right in thinking that there, we're never going to be able to hear the rebel yell, it's this lost sound. The people that have tried to capture it uh, are in some ways on a fool's errand. Then why are we still so into it? And why did I feel like the rebel yell was a part of my lexicon and my understanding long before I began this project? I think it's because of pop culture. You know, there's a roller coaster at Carowinds called the rebel yell. There's some bad bourbon called the rebel yell. The UNLV college newspaper is called the rebel yell. And of course, Billy Idol's rebel yell will be played at every roller rink until the end of time. (laughs) So, and then, and then, of course, there are very strange, menacing connections to the rebel yell that come from the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, when it was reappropriated as a name for a noise that was associated with lynching. So, just that that weird knot of sound and culture and imagination and untying it was was one of the things that I, I worked hard at when I was writing that that essay, "How to Spell the Rebel Yell." It was the most difficult essay I think to write in the book. It's a it's a fascinating essay. Um, 
primarily because you deny yourself um, the myth that you can get to it. And so the, the essay has a whole different set of challenges. What it, what's it like to write the history of a sound that you can no longer hear? Um, and so it, in the end, it's kind of wonderfully elegiac and celebratory. I think it's I, one thing that I will never probably knock on would be able to hear is the sound of a soldier running to his death or her death. Uh, and we've had war cries as long as we've had the ability to make sound before we could even make words. I'm sure we had war cries and that's another kind of lost sound for me. So, so when the essay ended, I really just wanted to kind of think about how the, the body is what makes sound. And, and we've decided that changes in the body can be reflected in the sounds that we make. Like at the Scala, it used to be that women opera singers could take days off when they were menstruating because their, uh, the resonance in their body would change. So imagine the changes of sound of a body at that moment of, of enforced peril, of going into war, of running toward people that want to kill him. I, I, I know it's really macabre, but I, I, I'm never going to be able to hear what that resonance is. And in some ways I celebrate that because of my own safety, but in other ways I celebrate that because it's just one more wrinkle in the sonic possibility of the body that I normally use just to talk politely to you. Like I'm doing right now, Eric, you know? (laughs) Yes. Yes. And you know, if, if there are listeners out there that like me, when you began telling the story of the battlefield thought, Oh man, this is starting to get kind of exciting in an action movie sort of way. The passages in the book mirror that when you get to that passage in the book, you just think you get a little breathless imagining this charge over the hill and you know, the, the intensity and the adrenaline that's coursing through the soldiers. And so uh, you have this ability to drop in and out of emotional registers in the essay that I think helps us to deliver some of the, or it helps deliver some of the affect of the sound and what it feels like to listen to them. Oh, good. Thank you. <laughs> sure thing. But one of the things I want to make sure people know is that it's not just your voice in the book, that you've created a kind of chorus that runs through uh, and both exemplifies and complicates what you have to say about voices as you move through the book. Could you tell us a little bit about what that is and what was your decision behind that? Oh, sure. I, um, uh, I, I, these essays, as, as we've been talking about them, I think it's becoming pretty obvious. They're kind of intense and they're really long and they, they all feel like these big knots that have to be untied. And I felt when I, once I started putting them all together in one document, they just seemed like they needed palate cleansers. They needed something quick and loud and bright and simple that didn't sound like any of the major work that was being done in between them. And uh, so I started thinking about all of the different types of ways that people were using their voice that I probably wasn't going to get to in the book and that I wouldn't be able to report about as myself people who had spoken in tongues, for example, or uh, a sportscaster uh, who's narrating a crazy play or somebody who uh, impersonates Elvis <laughs> and I, or an auctioneer. And I started finding these people and calling them up and just asking them to do a 45-minute interview with me. And then I took their words and turned them into these little one or two page monologues in between the longer essays. Um, and I'd be happy to read one if you'd like to hear one. I think that would be wonderful. Okay. So here is, uh, let's see. Is it okay if I have swear words in them? <laughs> I think you can, I think we can assume at this point, the listeners who are listening are all in. Oh, good. Okay. So yeah, put on your earmuffs if you're under 21 or something. Oh no, this, oh, this one's chaste. Okay. Here's one. This one is called, the novice 
I have to tell you that I did not beg for the tickets. Somebody at my father's work gave him a pair and said, you have teenage girls. They're going to want to go to this. I knew there was this group and this song, I Want to Hold Your Hand, because my friends were going to do a thing at the school talent show. You know, Kathy is Ringo and Barbie is Paul. And I knew that they all shook their heads woo when they sang, but I was the only one of my friends who got to see them in person, if you can call it that. My dad wouldn't take us, and my mother didn't drive in the city, so her friend drove my sister and me to the Civic Arena, and it was sold all the way around. I remember them coming out in gray suits alone. This was before the Jumbotron and the lights, and they were just specks on the stage. And I can't tell you their set list, but I'm sure they played I Want to Hold Your Hand, and I saw her standing there because they had that woo, which we all knew was when we would clap and shake our heads, woo, and then everybody would scream. Even the dads knew it was time to clap and scream. Really, 45 years later, my images are of the crowd to my right, to my left, behind me, all screaming and shaking their heads. I guess I just watched everyone around me screaming their lungs out. And remember, I was this 14-year-old from Blonox with a wiener flip and village clothes and a circle pin. And 14 then was like way, way younger, like 10 now. But I wanted so much to be hip and cool I wanted to scream along with everybody, and I did try a few times, and my own scream just got lost in the sea of all the other screams. And these people around me looked like they had this genuine need to scream, and I wonder why I didn't. It was confusing, but yeah, that was my first concert. (laughs) That's fantastic. (laughs) My friend's mom. (laughs) She's... She's this, got this great, I wish I could do it. And she's got this great Pittsburgh accent. Uh, so she's kind of, you know, just kind of talking with this great, it's Pittsburgh is this kind of strange accent, but yeah, that's a. Well, that's a you accent. do, you do full justice to the Pittsburgh dialect in the book, um, in another essay. Um, but the, the, the final, uh, monologue, all of them are wonderful. All of them are these, these almost lyric poems that you've distilled down from the interviews. Um, but the, the final one is one that, that's quite curious. It's, it's a very interesting note on which to end the book. Oh, yeah, the amputee. Yeah, th- and this isn't, this isn't an interview that I solicited. I actually found this on YouTube. There's a gentleman who calls himself Quiet Bob. And uh, I, he just took it upon himself about six years ago to publish a series of Internet videos. No picture just a black screen of him talking through his, um, uh, he, he's had a laryngectomy. And so he's talking through that machine that you put up next to your uh, throat so that that comes out kind of sounding like robot And so there was, it was just a, this monologue that he gave. And he sort of, ha- in the beginning, he talks through the machine. And in the end, he takes off the machine. He says, I'm going to make some sounds without the vocal thing and 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 then he uh, removes the machine and for the last like 20 seconds of the youtube clip you just hear this guy going like making these these sounds without any voice and it's just i don't know it's a reason for youtube so i thought it would be a great way to end the book because it ends with this kind of voiceless communication Mm -hmm. and and also maybe the future of the voice and the in the digital remake of it yeah isn't that a great great decision on the point on the part of that gentleman uh, that he would he would want he, he has this this unique profile a way of communicating with the world 
And so he just makes these videos and sends them out his own golden record into space, uh, hoping that people will understand the two different ways in which he can use his voice to talk. I just, that's just, this is gold. This is gold. <laughs> yeah. I'm constantly amazed for all the, the crap that you end up wading through on the web, how much you hit these pockets of personal courage and, uh, and just things that would never otherwise, you, you would never otherwise encounter, encounter them. And suddenly they just soar in your consciousness. Um, well, I want to ask you about one other ending before we, we maybe move forward. Um, but, you know, for, for as unique as each essay is in the way it's blending all kinds of different threads and all kinds of different materials, uh, the final essay that you yourself write stands out. The Monstrous Little Voice. The Monstrous Little Voice. Could you tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, your, your collaboration with a dummy? And we're literally talking about a wooden character who sits on a lap. Well, I wanted, I wanted to write about ventriloquism so badly, but uh, the, all of my attempts, I did a lot of work and a lot of reading. Uh, the, I, there were a couple of subjects like this that I kind of just had to axe because I was too close to them to do any kind of great essayistic work. I just wanted to celebrate them with exclamation points, and I, I wasn't able to sort of put... I, I didn't have enough cognitive distance to do anything great, but I do love ventriloquists and I wish, I wish I could write more about them. Um, and I, I, they had to be in the book because I think they're so fascinating. I wanted to put a ventriloquist dummy on the cover. I wanted to name the book after this great ventriloquist exercise called, Oh my Billy, what a fine piano. I'm, I'm on the team of ventriloquists. Uh, so the idea that I came up with was, or the thing that I tried to, the thing that I decided was fascinating about ventriloquism was the idea that uh, the, the, there's always this sort of characterization of the dummy as being this rogue figure, this rogue vocal extension of a person. And so I thought, but what if that person, that ventriloquist, didn't exist, and the ventriloquist dummy had to figure out how to talk? So I researched all of these like Cosmo quizzes and Briggs Meyer personality tests, and I made a, a personality test for a dummy to take, uh, and so that I would then diagnose him or her with a voice that he could have as their own. Just imagining that I could I could say this is the kind of voice that you should give yourself when you're living your life quote unquote off the knee. Uh, and I ran into a real challenge because I couldn't find somebody who would let me give this quiz to their dummy. The relationship between ventriloquist and they're not called dummies. They call them figures. The relationship between vent and figure is very sacred. And no one was really interested in breaking that for my own ridiculous essay writing impulses. But I found this woman in Pittsburgh, greatest city in America, named Teresa Foley, and she was game. She's a little bit more of a performance artist and comedian. She does a ventriloquist uh, thing with chat roulette that I don't have enough time to go into right now, but it's great. You should look it up. Uh, and she agreed to have her dummy, Hector, take the quiz. And so all of the answers in that uh, essay are, are hers slash his. And He's great because he's got a lot of anxiety. He's afraid of uh, he's afraid that he's nobody's going to be able to understand him, and he uh, is, has like some kind of uh, 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 gosh, I can't remember what he's what he calls it, but he, he's got he's got a lot of a lot of hangups. So he's sort of working through his hangups when he's trying to figure out what voice he wants to have. <laughs> and I think it's it's a great note to to end the collection on because of course there's this prevalent idea in literary writing of the voice of a writer's voice, you know, Faulkner's voice. Um, 
And then there's also throughout the book, there's been the celebration of the, the voice that you actually inherit, that you're a biological instrument. And of course, the, the idea of the literary voice is that it, it is so intrinsically your own. Um, it's that thing that, that you create that's only you. Um, but then there's, there's a vexed relationship that I think many people have to their own inherited voice when they hear it play back to them. I don't sound like that. I can't sound like that. Um, and, you know, how, to what extent the vocal sound you produce actually express what you think of as your own essence. Yeah, no, totally. And is it more the voice that resonates in your own head, literally, in your, your nasal cavities, in your eyes? Is that your voice? Or is your voice the thing that other people hear as it resonates in the outside world? To, who has more? Who owns it more? I, I, I think that's a, a really fun little game to play with your brain to think about. Staying up in the middle of the night going, I'm saying this to myself, but is that me? <laughs> Right, you're the own tree. It's the tree falling in the woods. If a voice, if a voice resonates in a head, and nobody's around to hear it, does it count? Yeah. <laughs> we'll leave that as a cliffhanger. Well, so now I know that the book is still being celebrated, and that you're off doing readings as well. You should be, and I hope that continues uh, for a long time. Uh, but just out of curiosity, where where are you going next as a writer? I'm really interested in writing something small next. This book, I feel like, is just one great opening of the arms, and it's reaching as far as I could. But I, I really like to write something next that has littler sentences and littler questions and just little compact pieces of prose. And the uh, topic that I've been thinking the most about are celebrity animals. Not like, um, not like Paris Hilton's dog or anything, but animals that we have named and written about in historical register that we have decided are a certain way that we've given personalities to in some ways that we've given a voice to. So like, you know, uh, uh, checkers, Richard Nixon's dog that he made that speech about, or, uh, the, the circus elephant in Texas that, uh, rampaged a town, or Sackerson, the most famous baited bear in Elizabethan England and Jacobean, or maybe Jacobean, no, Elizabethan England, things like that. It sounds fascinating. Well, I hope when you write it, you'll come back and, and we'll, we'll interview you, but we'll use smaller questions and sentences. <laughs> right. And maybe I'll, I'll have my animals answer for you. <laughs> By then you'll have your figures. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Well, Elena, thank you so much for your time and uh, best of luck to you and best of luck with this book. What a pleasure. Thank you. And, and thank you, everybody, for listening. Yay. My name is Eric LeMay, and you've been listening to an interview with Elena Passarelio, author of Let Me Clear My Throat on the New Books Network. <laughs>